Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello and welcome to episode number 169 of the Draft Analyst, presented by the Believe Sports Podcast Network. Do you believe? I'm your host, Chris Tripodi, and with me, as always, is Tony Pauline. And Tony, the national title game is now set. Going in, it looked likely that we were going to get another episode of the Alabama Clemson show. And while the tide held up its end of the bargain, the Tigers could not in a blowout loss to Ohio State, which certainly feels weird to say. More on that a bit later in the show. But the game may not be played on January 11th. Reports have Ohio State dealing with more COVID-19 issues. Certainly nothing is set in stone at the moment. But whether this game ends up being played next week or the week after, there are going to be some serious offensive fireworks. Yeah, absolutely. I I mean, you know, the two uh, semifinal games really weren't games at all. Uh, Notre Dame never showed up and and Clemson kind of faltered from the get-go. Uh, but, you know, as we expected, there were a lot of teams. Uh, Alabama put up a lot of points, and as did Ohio State. And as we'll talk about, as I put out on Twitter, it was almost a heroic performance by Justin Fields. Absolutely. And now we'll get right into today's show in just a moment after this word from our sponsor. The NFL playoffs and the college football playoff title game are right around the corner, and the NBA and college basketball are in full swing. With all these sports going on, there are plenty of bets to lock in. So if you're thinking about picking the Lakers to repeat in their NBA championship or someone to upset Pat Mahomes and the Chiefs, you need to go to betonline.ag. No more Heisman Trophy to bet on with Devonta Smith taking home the hardware, but his team may be involved in a record-setting over-under for a national title game sitting right now at 75 points. I wonder what the odds would have been for Devonta Smith winning the Heisman Trophy Back in August, I'm sure if you put down a 10 or $20 bet at betonline.ag on Devonta Smith winning the Heisman Trophy in August, you'd be a very happy person last night. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, BetOnline gives you more options to wager than any place online. And there's always the online casino as well. It never closes. So head to betonline.ag today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Again, that's betonline.ag and sign up today. BetOnline your online sportsbook experts. Now, speaking of Devonta Smith, the Heisman winning receiver will obviously be in high demand in next April's draft. The question becomes how high? As usual, we have several quarterbacks poised to go in the top five. Panay Suel is the top pass protector in the draft. And then you have the wide receivers, LSU's Jamar Chase, who didn't play this season, and Devonta Smith. So, Tony, I'll pose the question to you first. Will Devonta Smith be a top six pick in the 2021 NFL draft? Uh, I'm going to say no. I think he's going to grade out as a top six player, but with the potential of having three quarterbacks taken in the top, uh, in the top six, then you got Penny Sewell. I still have Jamar Chase rated a little bit higher uh, than Devonta Smith. I think if he goes top six, it would be to the Philadelphia Eagles with that six selection. But I'm going to say no. I think what could happen is the Eagles, maybe somebody could trade up uh, with the Eagles who maybe want to get a quarterback. I think they could surprise people and take a cornerback. 
regardless, I don't think Devonta Smith ends up as a top six pick, though I think he'll be graded as a top six player in the draft. I'm going to go in the other direction here, and I'm going to say, yes, Devonte Smith will be a top five pick, or sorry, a top six pick. Um, obviously, we do think that Justin Fields, Trevor Lawrence, and Zach Wilson are all going to go in the top five, and, and probably Penny Sewell as well. So that locks in four of the top five picks, and then we mentioned both Jamar Chase and Devonte Smith, and I think both of those guys are legitimate options, both for the Bengals at number five and the Eagles at number six. I mean, you look at the Bengals, A.J. Green is gone at the end of the year, was a shell of his former self this year anyway. Uh, T. Higgins is a win-at-the-catch-point kind of receiver, underrated athlete, but not the kind of guy that has that game-breaking athleticism. Tyler Boyd is a slot receiver. So the Bengals will have their choice between two game-breakers in Chase and Devontae Smith, whoever is higher on their board if they decide to go in the direction of wide receiver to help out Joe Burrow a little bit. Certainly will be an option there. And then you mentioned the Eagles perpetually needing help at wide receiver. I know they selected Jalen Rager in last year's draft, but you can never have enough speed and game-breaking ability, especially if they're going to move forward with Jalen Hurts. They're going to want guys who can catch passes in the short and intermediate field and potentially create yards after the catch. I guess the interesting picks, which will determine that, are the second and third pick. You know, did the Jets take a quarterback? Did they take Penny Sewell? And what did the Dolphins do? If Penny Sewell's off the board... Are the Dolphins going to trade down or are the Dolphins going to grab a receiver at three? I think the, the earlier the receiver is selected in the top five, assuming a receiver is selected in the top five, the better the chances are that Devonta Smith uh, is off the board by the seventh selection of the draft. And then the other question is the Falcons at number four, because they have an aging quarterback. They haven't been a winning team in a while. Um, there's going to be some turnover in the organization. You know, are they going to want to select a quarterback if Miami doesn't trade down from number three or decide that they, you know, have already bailed on Tua and decide to take the third quarterback off the board. If the Jets go QB there, um, you know, Atlanta, you don't really know where they're going to go because we don't know where their situation is at right now. They could even take a receiver. I mean, Calvin Ridley's a stud Julio Jones when he's on the field is, but he's getting older. They don't really have a ton behind him. Russell Gage had an all right season. But, I mean, there are a lot of options here, I feel like, for quarterbacks and receivers, as, as there always will be, especially at the quarterback position. But I think at this point, and now we're talking in January now, but certainly the earlier a receiver were to go in the draft, whether it be Jamar Chase or Devontae Smith himself, uh, certainly would be a better bet for him to go in the top six. But, yeah, a lot still to be told, as is normally the case this early in the process. Yeah, I have, uh, I have difficulty even fathoming that the uh... – the Miami Dolphins are going to move on from Tua. I don't think you played that badly, and I don't think you start all over again after just one year, especially when it's the same coaching staff. I think your point is right on. I mean, Atlanta may be that team that wants to move up in the third hole uh, to get a new quarterback, especially since they're going to have a new – likely, I should say, have a new general manager and a new head coach. Now on to our reviews of the bowl games from New Year's Eve and New Year's Day, and we'll start – on New Year's Eve, where Ball State rolled San Jose State, Spartans were missing some key players, including wide receiver Bailey Gaither. Uh, coach let them go home for Christmas, and there were some COVID protocols that got in the way for certain players there. Don't want to speculate beyond that, but it did kind of spell doom against this Ball State defense, especially because on the first offensive play of the game, tight end Derek Deese Jr. hurt his neck. So just Trey Walker left in terms of the top weapons for San Jose State. Walker had seven catches for 81 yards, but really only caught – Short passes with Amechi Uzodoma playing off coverage and shutting down everything beyond 10 yards. Came up the field for some nice pass breakups as well. Fellow cornerback Antonio Phillips had a pick six early on in this game. An easy one, but certainly showed some good hands to finish it and take it to the house. 
And then safety Bryce Cosby, sticking with the secondary here for Ball State. Team high nine tackles, came up hard against the run, was really all over the field. He's actually the one who hit Deese, clean hit, but on the play he was hurt. He's the one that created that situation. Added an interception at the goal line as well when he came off his man when he saw the pass release and made a play on the ball. Almost had a second interception too. I mean, really just all over the field in this one. And the Cardinals defense was really dominant. Yeah, and that it started with Antonio Phillips. You mentioned the, uh, the pick six. But the player two before that, uh, Phillips had a tremendous pass breakup, a deep pass breakup over the middle of the field. Uh, a pass that if it was caught, San Jose State probably would have scored. They didn't. Phillips uh, made the pick six. And then San Jose State was basically playing from behind with an undermanned unit. I thought it was a terrific game from Phillips. Uh, I think he showed a lot of skill and reason why scouts graded him as a potential six-round pick coming into the season. I still think he's going to go undrafted. Maybe he ends up in the late rounds. Maybe scouts saw enough in that game that they think that they can, they've got something to work with. He's a feisty guy. But as I said last week, one of the big issues is he can't make plays with his back to the ball. That pick six, he was obviously facing the action. Although that deep uh, pass breakup right before that pick six was a tremendous play. Absolutely. A nice play on that one. Earlier in the day. Tulsa fell to Mississippi State 28-26, continuing the bowl struggles of the American Athletic Conference. There's also a huge brawl after the game for what it's worth. But my main takeaway here from the action on the field is actually the player who did not play in the game. And that's Tulsa linebacker Zayvon Collins. Mississippi State, one of the worst rushing teams in college football, not only because Mike Leach doesn't like to run the ball, but also they didn't really have a running back once Kylan Hill moved on and they weren't even using him in the running game anyway. But they rushed for 123 yards in this game. That was over three times their season average. And you really can't imagine that that happens if Collins plays in this game. And frankly, considering how close it was, Tulsa probably wins the game as well. Potential late round wide receiver Keelan Stokes started a bit slow, finished over 100 yards, but had a couple drops and just kind of compiled stats in comeback mode. Teammate Gerard Wheeler at center had a strong game, planting defenders on the ground consistently, showed strong hands, got to the second level, came off blocks to pick up free rushers on the blitz as well of note for the Bulldogs linebacker E-Roll Thompson nine tackles one and a half for loss one sack one pass breakup very forceful on the blitz made some plays out to the sideline got decent depth on his zone drops overall impressive games from Thompson and Wheeler in this one uh Ty Neal Martin the defensive back who I mentioned a week ago somebody to watch a guy who was not graded by scouts he's got excellent size had six tackles uh, he played a solid game and ironically, he was the guy that the Mississippi State players were running after at the end of that game with that brawl. He was the guy that got his helmet ripped off. He got kicked. I, I mean, I, I, I just couldn't, I couldn't fathom what I was seeing. When I, I saw them taking the guy off who was uh, dragging his, his leg, I, I didn't know what had happened. And I saw the brawl. I, I figured this must have happened before the game. And then when I saw what happened after the game, it, it was just, it, it was absolutely bizarre. Regardless of that, I think Ty, uh, Ty Neal Martin uh, played very well. Again, a guy who's was off the radar, uh, off the scouting radar throughout the season. I have him as a priority free agent. Obviously, we got to find out what his legitimate size and speed numbers are. He's a tall guy. I don't know that he's very fast. May have to move him inside to safety. But he had a good game, and you know he was the highlight of the game afterwards. Now moving on to New Year's Day, where Cincinnati controlled the Peach Bowl for much of the game, but they ended up losing 24-21 to Georgia. And like Tulsa, 
who likely wins with Zayvon Collins on the field, since he likely wins with a full game from left tackle James Hudson, who was ejected for targeting late in the first half after what was really a silly late hit against Tyson Campbell. But before his ejection, showed strong hands to control defenders when he got the opportunity to go up against Aziz Ojolari, held him mostly in check outside of a couple snaps. But once Hudson left the game, Ojolari really went off, forced a big fourth quarter fumble to set Georgia up with great field position where they scored a touchdown, ended a later drive with a big sack, and he finished the game with a safety for his third sack on the final play, which, you know, that, that play had no chance of really succeeding, but even still just punctuating an amazing quarter, really, for Ojolari, victimizing Hudson's replacement at left tackle and really changing the dynamic of this game. But again, that's kind of to be expected from a first-round guy like Ojolari, since he quarterback Desmond Ritter, inconsistent ball placement at times, especially early on, but he bought time in the pocket, kept his eyes downfield, and, and made some very nice plays that were only made possible by his mobility, but on that fumble in the fourth quarter, didn't sense Ojolari coming off the edge, really couldn't move the ball late, especially once Hudson left the game. And ultimately, that's what allowed Georgia to hang around and end up winning this game. Ojolari, who has already announced for the draft, finished with three tackles for loss, three sacks, and two forced fumbles. And I mean, it was basically that whole, his whole play, the second half, could be a highlight reel. I, I mean, he was unreal. And the thing about Ojolari is, He's not just a guy who pins his ears back and rushes up the field. You saw the, the uh, lateral speed in pursuit. You saw basically his ability to quickly locate the ball and then make plays on the ball. That is why literally going from the beginning of the summer, he was a guy that I graded as a potential first round selection, even though scouts who grade underclassmen had given him a fifth round grade scouts, which uh, his uh, coaches were trying to keep him around telling him that he had received the fifth round grade which he did over the summer, but that was ridiculous, especially since Ojolari is a redshirt sophomore. I think this guy is, is a complete player. I think he's going to be drafted after Rousseau of Miami of Florida, but I think he could be a better player in the NFL because he do, does so many things uh, so well. Hudson, I, I mean, like you said, it was a stupid play. There was bad clock management. Uh, I, I think these were two, I think the Tulsa loss and the Cincinnati loss were two bad losses for the American Athletic Conference. Tulsa, even with or without Zayvon Collins, should have beaten a poor Mississippi State team. Cincinnati should have beaten Georgia. When I posted that on Twitter, people said, yeah, but Cincinnati lost James Hudson. They didn't have their best running. You know, their running back, Dokes, was not in the game. Listen, if you want to go blow for blow as far as the talent from the Georgia team that opted out of this game because – they're preparing for the draft or they were injured versus the players from Cincinnati who did not play. Even when James Hudson was ejected from the game, the Cincinnati talent that didn't play pales in comparison to Georgia that had three second day selections. A uh, little bit surprised. I thought we would have seen more discipline and better clock management uh, from Luke Fickle. I just thought both of these losses, the loss to Georgia by Cincinnati and the loss to Mississippi state from Tulsa were bad for the American athletic conference. Now, the Rose Bowl kicked off the two playoff games on New Year's Day. And as Tony mentioned in the lead, it really was never a game. Alabama beat Notre Dame 31-14, but the game was not as close as that score would indicate. And the score isn't even that close. Uh, there was a meaningless late touchdown that the Irish put on the board. Ian Book couldn't take advantage of the Alabama defense, as some others have this year, which we kind of discussed last week as something he needed to do if he was going to impress NFL scouts. Just couldn't make it happen. Devontae Smith. Another three touchdown catches. Not that we thought Notre Dame could stop them, but they certainly didn't. 
Najee Harris had another highlight hurdle. Feels like he does that almost every week at this point. And for a man his size, just, you know, we've been talking about him all season. I think in our eyes, clearly the top running back in the draft. No disrespect, Matt, to Travis ETM. Did have a rare drop on a short pass, but otherwise up to his usual tricks with 155 total yards. Mac Jones continued to be efficient as he always is 25 for 30, 290 yards and four touchdowns. The matchups we were watching closely though, Alex Leatherwood against Adetagumbo Ogundeji didn't happen on every snap, but Ogundeji did virtually nothing against Leatherwood had a half sack, one pressure in the game that actually came against the tight end. The other matchup was Alabama defensive tackle Christian Barmore against Notre Dame guard, Aaron Banks didn't really see it much if at all, but Barmore was very impressive. Five tackles, one sack, super quick off the line, can bend under blocks, even on the inside, just a game wrecker on the interior. And he really gave the Notre Dame offensive line and the offense as a whole fits. Yeah, I think the story for me was another poor passing performance from Ian Book, because really right from the get-go, he was missing short screen passes to wide open receivers overthrowing them, not giving them a chance to uh, catch the ball. And these were on critical third downs where Notre Dame had an opportunity to hold on to the ball and move the chains. And time and time again, we've talked on this podcast. Book is very athletic. I mean, he kept Notre, he kept Notre Dame in that game and eventually won that game, the first game against Clemson during the regular season when Trevor Lawrence didn't play primarily because of his running skills. And I think he makes his offensive tackles look a little bit better than they actually are because of his ability to elude the rush or pick up yardage with his feet. But his passing was just terrible during this game. Uh, he's a guy, if he gets drafted, Ian Book, maybe it's in the late rounds. But as far as I'm concerned, unless it's a perfect system fit, you're looking at a practice squad guy who really need, who really must learn to go from being a thrower to a passer. To cap our bowl reviews here, well, Justin Fields, he, he says hi, and he says hi to everybody who doubted him heading into the game. 22 of 28, 385 yards, six touchdowns, a new Sugar Bowl record, and a 49-28 drubbing of Clemson for Ohio State. I mean, this was the guy that we talked about last week as possibly having the most to both gain and lose with his performance this past week. And boy, did he really step up. The wrist we discussed was a non-issue from last game, but he was banged up a little after he got crushed by James Skowski on a play that saw Skowski ejected for targeting in yet another playoff game happened last year as well. Didn't matter for Fields in terms of the injury. He went deep at will, hit on multiple deep balls, also missed one that would have been a seventh touchdown. I mean, one of those deep passes was on the money, traveled 60 yards in the air. Then he sealed it early in the fourth quarter with another bomb. I mean, obviously the physical tools have never been in question for Justin Fields, but in this one, he went through progressions pretty nicely when he had to. Overall, though, was kept pretty clean in another great performance by his stalwart offensive line, opened up holes for Trey Sermon, too. And speaking of Sermon, I mean, another big game for the former Oklahoma running back, kind of showing he's more than just a power back with the moves he's putting on and what he's showing as a receiver on short passes out of the backfield. Defensively for the Buckeyes, Pete Werner and Tuff Borland played very well. Tony, we're going to get to the Clemson side of things in just a moment, but talk about what you saw from Fields and the rest of the Ohio State team. I, I mean, you got to be happy. You got to be incredibly impressed. Uh, it was a great performance. I, I mean, and, and like you said, off the Indiana game, off the Big Ten title game against Northwestern, there were doubters. There were people who were questioning, you know, is Fields the second quarterback in the draft? Well, he made, he made his case that he deserves to be the second quarterback uh, in the draft. 
against Clemson. I mean, it was just nonstop go. Uh, and I think, you know, you, you talk about the uh, Ohio State linebackers. Their offensive line was terrific. I mean, Clemson is not a real talented defense. As I said last week, they play good unit defense. I think the, uh, the Sklasky hit, which we'll get into, kind of turned the tide of the game or turned it more towards Ohio State than what it was. But that Ohio State offensive line, Myers, Davis, Munford, they were, they were just terrific uh, and really helped control the game, opened up the holes that Trey Sherman was able to motor through, protected the uh, fields. Uh, you know, fields deserves to be the star of the game. And as you said, we talked about him having so much to gain uh, in the postseason, and I think he did a good job. We'll see how he does against Alabama. But I think that Ohio State offensive line also played very well. This is the second straight week we've uh, really waxed poetic about that offensive line. I mean, they so, so much talent on that offensive line that helps that offense go. I did promise some Clemson talk, though, and obviously that has to start with Trevor Lawrence, 400 yards and two touchdowns. Not his best game. He certainly didn't play poorly, but he was under a lot of pressure, turned the ball over twice, actually fumbled three times on the day, only lost one of them. Nothing worrisome with Lawrence here, but just a note that he is actually somewhat human. Travis Etienne made a bigger impact as a receiver than as a runner, possibly due to the scoreboard. Amari Rogers was pretty quiet, eight catches, but just 54 yards. Darian Kendrick got beat a few times on the back end. The guy we discussed is uh, you know, needing a good performance coming in. I also mentioned Skowski's ejection as well. Just not a banner day for the Tigers at all in this game. Everything that could go wrong pretty much went wrong. I think what happened with Trevor Lawrence is he doesn't have great talent around him except for ATN, who's a real good player. And he elevates the players around him. You know, you, you mentioned Amari Rogers, Cornell Powell had a nice reception. But I, I think what happened was, in my opinion, it's just that you have an undermanned Clemson team, ATN and uh, Trevor Lawrence notwithstanding, and they just went up against a very talented Ohio State uh, defense. Uh, and, and that's basically what happened on the offensive side of the ball. I thought Darian Kendrick was horrible. I, I mean, he was getting beaten like a drum. This is a game that scouts, if he decides to enter the draft, I have not seen that officially. If he decides to enter the draft, scouts are going to go back and point and ask what happened. He looked confused. He was getting beat. Uh, it was just not a good, uh, good contest. And this is the type of game that people will remember pundits on the outside will talk about uh, in the lead up to the draft. If Kendrick decides to enter uh, the April event, I have him as a second round pick. I think that's probably where he's going to go if he enters. Uh, but again, probably has some soul searching to do, you know, the Skowski hit, I can understand the flag being thrown because he did lead with his helmet. I didn't think it warranted an ejection. I didn't think it was targeting, put his helmet down fields kind of twisted and turned and then up, ended up head to, uh, to rib contact or whatever it was. It was a vicious hit. I, I just think some of these, uh, or a lot of them, I should say, the targeting penalties are too subjective. I understand he should have got a 15-yard penalty for leading with his helmet. It, the injection for, uh, for targeting, didn't agree with it. And once he went out, I mean, the kind of the steam came out of the Clemson defense, which was, had been struggling up to that point. Yeah, and I think this is kind of a situation where the call was the correct call by the rule book, but maybe you have to look a little bit at the rule book here and say, okay, this is a penalty. As you said, you should not be leading with your helmet like that, but he led right into his ribs. I mean, it's not a malicious play. It's really bad form tackling. Honestly. I mean, you're, you're going to hurt yourself 
you know, going helmet first into somebody's ribs like that more than you're going to hurt anybody else, even though ironically Skalski wasn't hurt and Justin Fields kind of got the wind knocked out of him was a little banged up, but certainly not a serious injury uh, for Justin Fields, which is why targeting is in play. They want to avoid head hunting. They want to avoid big hits like that, leading with the head above the shoulders. This was not it. So maybe, you know, that rule needs a little bit of an adjustment in the offseason so that we don't see a situation like this, because as you said, it, it really did, you know, Ohio State was kind of well on its way already, but it really just sent things from bad to worse for Clemson. Skowski is the heart and soul of that Clemson defense, just the way Trevor Lawrence is the heart, heart and soul of the Clemson offense. And, it, you know, the game just took on a different tone once he was ejected. Now looking ahead to next week's title game, well, again, hopefully it happens next week. Everything so far says it will. We will break down all the top matchups for you here. We're going to start with Alabama's offense against Ohio State's defense. Not really a ton of intrigue in the trenches, but in the passing game, quarterback Mac Jones might face some pressure from Ohio State linebackers Pete Werner and Tuff Borland when they're used as blitzers. Heisman winning receiver Devontae Smith should see a lot of Sean Wade. Real big test for Sean Wade in this one after he didn't have such a stellar game against Clemson. Way less talented receiver at Clemson as well. And of course, Najee Harris is going to be a big test both as a runner and receiver for those aforementioned linebackers, in addition to Baron Browning. I'm not sure I see this Ohio State defense being able to stop the tight offense, and that's just based on the personnel that we're kind of running through here. I tend to agree with you, but it's going to be interesting to see Tommy Tagaya of uh, Ohio State, who I have rated right now as a third-round pick who's played well this year and seems to play better by the week, going up against Alabama guard Deontay Brown, who is a draft pick. Brown's played very well this year. I have him graded lower than most. Uh, some people are talking about him as a top 100 pick. I think he's a little bit later than that. But still, it's a guy, even last week against Clemson, you saw him get a lot of pressure on the inside. You saw him create a lot of havoc. Uh, so that's going to be an interesting matchup to watch. Now the Alabama defense matches up a bit better against Ohio State's offense than the reverse in the sense that there is enough talent here on the field to maybe slow down Justin Fields and company, unlike when Bama has the ball. There's some definite intrigue up front. On this side, Christian Barmore coming off his stellar performance against Notre Dame. He's going to face off against that Ohio State offensive line that we keep talking about, particularly center Josh Myers and guard Wyatt Davis. We'll see if they're able to keep Barmore away from Justin Fields and Trey Sermon. See if Justin Fields will have time to throw to Chris Olave, who should see a lot of Patrick Sertan the second and maybe some Josh Job as well. And I'm interested to see if Sertan can take Olave out of the game. Olave is a guy runs really consistent routes, shows the ability to get downfield as well. And Sertan, as we've discussed, has been up and down at times this year. So it'll be interesting to see how he handles the consistency of Olave. Running back Trey Sermon has really taken over that Ohio State backfield. Dylan Moses is going to have to play a big part in trying to slow down Trey Sermon and deal with that offensive line on the inside. Really talent at every level when the Buckeyes have the ball. How would you handicap it, Tony? Yeah, that's, that's a matchup I want to watch. I know that uh, Dylan Moses, he's not getting as much love at this point uh, in time where people thought he was going to be either prior to this season or prior to the 2019 season uh, where he suffered the injury and missed the entire campaign. I think a lot of that is just the way the scheme they use him. I mean, they use him to make the play calls. They ask him to be a disciplined linebacker rather than a playmaker. I, I mean, if there's a guy on the field that's going to have to try and slow down Trey Sherman, it's going to be Dylan Moses. The other guy I'll be interested to see is Josh Job of Alabama to see if he's matched up against Olave or any of the other Ohio State wide receivers. Joby has been up and down. I'm told there's a very good chance he enters the draft. 
probably uh, figures as a early day three type of cornerback at the top of his game. He's very good, but then he also gets beat a lot. So that is a, uh, a matchup. It'll be interesting to see if Alabama, if I'm sorry, if Ohio state tries to exploit and stay away from Patrick Sertain. Now, before we sign off for the week, we're going to roll out some conference scouting reviews. Obviously we preview all the conferences over the summer and now we have a full season of film. I know Tony's been diving in. So we're going to start with the Mac here. We're going to start with a four pack of questions on some of the early film work. Tony, first things first in the Mac, which player from watching the film surprised you the most? It's going to be a safety from Miami of Ohio by the name of Sterling Weatherford, a fourth year junior, a guy who barely played in 2019, but he popped off the film on me. Smart guy, tough guy, very instinctive, outstanding ball skills, and a real good run defender, a guy who was constantly around the action when I broke down the, uh, the Miami of Ohio film. Uh, here's a guy who, who I thought the best Miami of Ohio safety going into the season would have been Mike Brown, who some scouts feel could be a late-round pick, priority free agent. Hands down, it was Sterling Weatherford, who, if he returns in 2021, which I believe he should, you're looking at a guy who could be top 90 for the 2022 draft. Now, taking this in the other direction, who would you say was your biggest disappointment? I think it's got to be Weatherford's teammate, Miami of Ohio's cornerback, Manny Rugamba. Rugamba showed flashes of ability the past two years, but he never really put together a consistent game. He made some decent plays on the ball, but at times he was also getting beat left and right by opponents. Scouts get graded him, and I also thought he was a potential late-round pick coming into the season. I think based off of his play this past year, he's probably going to drop and become a priority free agent. Kind of along the same lines of disappointing players, who do you think scouts are overrating from the conference? I got to say it's Tommy Doyle, of uh, again, from Miami of Ohio. So we've got a theme going on here. Scouts graded him as a potential third-round pick coming into the season. He's a big guy, six foot seven, 310 pounds, looks relatively athletic, but he's very inconsistent on the field. Blocks with good mechanics for the most part, but not really a dominant run blocker. Solid, but not great in pass protection. Not the type of guy that is a day two pick. And I thought this about Doyle before the season and after, the two, after watching the 2020 uh, film, I still see Doyle as a late day three guy rather than a potential day two pick as scouts graded him. And lastly, Tony, which player from Miami of Ohio, oh, I mean the Mac, has seen the biggest grade change from the start of the 2020 season until now? On my board, it would have to be Coyote Awasika of uh, Buffalo, the left tackle who projects the guard. You know, everyone talks about Jared Patterson and his record-breaking season. Well, one of the reasons why Patterson had such a great season were, were the big holes that Owasika uh, was opening up for. He's a guy who some scouts graded him as a second-day pick coming into the season. I was much lower on him. But when I watched him play, you're talking about a big, strong, nasty guy who, once he gets his hands on defenders, it's game over. Doesn't have the great footwork to stay at left tackle. Doesn't even have the great height. He only goes about six foot three. But I think he's going to be a real good power blocking guard in the NFL. And that's it for the 169th episode of the Draft Analyst, presented by the Believe Sports Podcast Network. Do you believe? If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe on any of the major podcast platforms and leave us a rating and a review. And feel free to ask us questions on Twitter. And we'd be happy to answer on the show. We'll be back next week with more on bowl season. But until then, for Tony Pauline, this is Chris Tripodi. Good night.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.